0: Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the weekly podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists and cutting edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance and science and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by Dr. Jason Boynton, who is a sports scientist and cycling coach, Cyrus Monk who is a professional cyclist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The Cycling Performance Club podcast is recorded live in the presence of an online audience. So you can join in and ask questions or just participate in the discussion. This week, we're gonna cover testing considerations for cyclists. And Jason is the one that's been doing all of the research and is going to lead this one. So take it away, Jason.
1: All right, thanks Damien. I, there's quite a bit to cover in this uh, episode, so we'll probably uh, divide it into two. Um, so that is a little bit more easy to digest b- for people. And um, But this one is going to be really heavy in theory. So buckle up and get ready. And I promise you, the episodes after this are going to be a lot more applied. But we are going to get applied in this episode as well. Yeah, so I decided that it would be a good idea to do this Topic for two reasons. One, I've been talking about doing the blood lactate testing episode forever of whether or not we should blood lactate test cyclists. But I realized that in order to do that episode, we should really cover our bases on testing. And so after going through and coming up with the notes, I realized there's a lot to cover in terms of just testing. So it's good to start here. And then uh, the other reason I thought it would be a really good idea to do an episode on testing is so that we can have a reference for ourselves and other coaches out there to point their athletes to. So something that's easy to digest and kind of discusses the theory and practice of testing.
0: So we're going to move beyond the 20-minute test?
1: <laughs> hey. Um,
0: Isn't that the only one out there?
1: <laughs> well... We're not going to get into a whole lot of examples. This is mostly okay. going to be okay. um, theory. And, and, and to kind of emphasize that is, is uh, I, you know, I'm going to reference mostly the National Strength and Conditioning Association's textbook. And they have a whole chapter in there on testing. And so I basically used, I've been using that chapter for a long time uh, as a reference for whenever I discuss testing of athletes. And I, I like that chapter because it's, it's a step back um, and kind of, and it's a good um, kind of examination of testing considerations for all sports. So there's certain considerations in testing that maybe aren't really on the radar for people if they've been coaching cyclists or an, or a cyclist uh, their whole whole careers, and so I really like I said, I really like that as a reference, so I use that chapter as kind of a skeleton and so uh I don't know if necessarily we'll be listing off tests like we did in the threshold conversation as much as talking about good practice and things to consider and and theory
0: so can we for one second just go through like maybe all of our histories? regarding testing because i feel like you're the person that has probably the most experience in this area across a lot of different tests and things so it would be handy to understand where you're coming from because if i was to read this chapter i'd be rolling it out to a limited set of athletes but you've been involved in studies and research and lots of different areas so maybe just a quick history of the types of uh, places and experiences that you've had regarding testing
1: well, Damien, thanks for giving me the chance to humble brag. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, have, I like the topic f- for two reasons. One, uh, I've had a lot of experience with it. And the other reason I really like it is because it gets into epistemology. And that's something I really like. The the study or the philosophy of determining truth and understanding truth and thoughts about how we get to truth. So testing is Basically, about trying to discover reality, and it's a big part of the scientific method. So, in terms, that's I mean, that's just one of the reasons I really like the the discussion of testing. But in terms of um, what my background in it, I was thinking about it today. I was while well, I was coming up with the, with the notes for, for the episode, I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm I'm in the hundreds in terms of athletes that I've tested. And so that would be within field testing and within the lab. So I've been started testing athletes in a lab back in 2005 during my undergrad. So I've had a lot of experience doing the lab testing. And then that kind of has been able to transfer over to the field testing with my athletes. And I think a lot of it has to do with being able to realize like, what well, was important to be focused on, what athletes uh, have to be really, really focused, and what athletes you can be a little bit more laid back with in your approaches to things. So, But it's, it's funny, the more you learn about testing, the more you realize wh- where you have wiggle room and where you don't.
0: And just, just quickly, um, my experience with testing is I've been tested in labs mm-hmm. a lot. Um, I've never actually run a test in a lab. So I haven't run any official blood tests, VO2max tests, any of these standard sort of tests. Uh, I've done plenty of field tests and remotely I've told a lot of people to do tests. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of my experience. How about you, Cyrus?
2: Yeah, same, same kind of thing, being tested quite a bit. And I think that's probably made me a little less enthusiastic than Jason about testing in general. It's <laughs> often a lot more fun prescribing the testing than it is having to carry it out yourself. But well
1: I, yeah I was say sorry I was gonna say like once you, once you guys brought that up, um, yeah, I have been the subject in, in almost every single research experiment that I've done. So yeah. uh, that, that doesn't get me out of testing just yeah, because yeah. I'm the sports scientist here. I so keep myself fit enough that I can be a subject in my own research.
2: Yeah. And that would be the, my final year of my undergrad. We conducted our own little mock study and that had Wingate testing. But of course, we were all the subjects as well. And mm-hmm. I was stupid enough to, to make the test ridiculously painful just with the uh, the classic maximal efforts but maximal from beginning to finish and yeah repeat 30 second bouts of that kind of thing but yeah that that didn't make me very popular among my group which (laughs) also had to be the participants but yeah that's that's my experience of testing there. And I definitely would say I'm much more inclined to prescribe it to my own athletes rather than <laughs> undertake it myself.
1: Well, that's a little bit of foreshadowing because one of the things that you have to consider when um prescribing tests is your population or your individuals. Yeah. So you didn't maybe you didn't do such a great job on that, Cyrus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely didn't consider my own <laughs> needs there. Yeah. So I, I think the first place to start is why do we test? And I, I got into that a little bit. It was just understanding reality. How well is your athlete performing? Are they getting better? Are they um, getting worse? It's, there's just so many aspects that you can analyze for an athlete to kind of help you get a picture of their developments within the training process Um, It's a very long topic to discuss in terms of all of the things that you can look at with testing, with athlete testing. But we are probably about 30, 35 years into the point where we have started implementing the study of exercise physiology into the applied sports world. Before that, not so much. So, you know, most of my life, most of Damien's life, all of Cyrus's life, the sports science world has been making its way into sport. And th- that's important because prior to that, most of the the idea of how to gain athlete, athletic success was determined in two parts. Well, one is the, the athlete is predisposition for se- success – so you have a very talented athlete with a great physiology. And then part two was you had a coach with a kind of static discipline training approach. And that was what was supposedly got you uh, high performing athletes. However, once the sport science made its way into the realm of sport, then the, uh, it became different. Because now we realize that we can fluctuate the training of an athlete and make it more flexible and tailored to them. And that, in order, if you're going to do that, you need to again have this idea of what reality is. And then that requires testing and requires collecting data from athletes. And so, if you're an amateur coach or even a professional coach, a cyclist, cycling coach, the Testing might and and prescribing testing for your athletes might just be part of part of the job. But I think what we forget is that it's so common within coaching that is that it is actually more within the realm and the scope of sports science. But it's good that you know coaches now have at least a rudimentary kind of understanding of sports testing and prescription and again this podcast is hopefully going to help them further not their knowledge in this and then also help athletes with their ability to prepare for these tests and perform in them well you guys have any thoughts on why we test i think just a reliable means of valid
2: of determining where someone's performance is at currently so that would be my main reason for testing is to work out if they are improve. An athlete is improving. Mm-hmm. If there's no way to test that, then it makes it very difficult to assess the benefits that may be caused by a training program or by having me as a coach. If you're not at some point able to test whether there has been any improvements there,
1: yeah. And I divided the the reason for why you would test the athlete into two parts. One, as you discussed, would be that intra-athlete comparison. So, you know, how do they perform f- from the start of training and then after an intervention or a period of time training, you know, did they make an improvement? Uh, are they reaching their goals? And then the other parts of that is assisting um, the athlete be on their peak for their primary or goal competitive event and if you think about it before the introduction of this scientific approach to training that idea wasn't really there the the idea of peaking and tapering and building none of that really existed at some point in sports. so
2: you're just trying to be
1: as good as you could be
2: mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole time yeah there wasn't much periodization going on.
1: Mm-hmm. And then the second part of athlete testing is this inter-athlete comparison. So that would be like we've talked about like ta- talent identification. You know, does flexing? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, when we're talking about testing, th- and this is something that we have discussed a lot when we've kind of talked about testing outside of this episode is is the evaluation of the test test's quality and that's important because you want to make sure that the tests that you are prescribing uh do what you want them to do. And so when you're evalu- evaluating the quality of a test, it gets into a discussion of validity and the reliability. And so the validity is the degree to which a test or test item measures what it is supposed to measure, and it is one of the most important characteristics of testing. And under validity, there's actually subcategories or different types of validity to consider when you are evaluating a test and whether or not you should prescribe it to an athlete. So this actually gets, again, into the theory if... If you are just coming into coaching and from being a cyclist, and all you've ever really gotten into it with in terms of the sports science side of thing is reading Coggins and Hunter Allen's book on you know training and racing with a power meter. If if you were to look at that, you would be thinking, oh, twenty minute test—that's just the valid approach. But there's and there's that all the thinking for that has basically already been done for you. So this what we're talking about here is like the behind the scenes kind of considerations that would be going on if you were going to come across a new test for an athlete or maybe you want to reconsider the 20 minute test. So so this is where this all the discussions in validity and reliability come in. And this and this is again a things to consider across that you, when you're applying tests to athletes in all sports, and so the types of validity are construct validity, face validity, content validity, and criterion referenced validity. So we'll just kind of go through these really quick. Construct validity uh, is the ability of the test to represent the underlying construct or idea of the sport, and this is kind of the primary type of validity. It's, kind of overarching over all of the other types of validity. And to be valid in this sense, tests should measure abilities important to the sport, produce repeatable results, appear meaningful, be able to differentiate between various levels of ability, permit accurate scoring, include an appropriate number of trials, and withstand, withstand the test of statistical evaluation. Yeah, there's a lot to consider there when you're-
0: That's a big checklist. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's why they- <laughs> a very long yeah, just, checklist. It, it, that's why it, it's nice to have these kind of sad these subcategories because like I said, the construct validity is just kind of the, is the uber validity <laughs> and the other ones kind of feed into it. The second type of validity is face validity. And this is about, does the test appear to measure what is purported to measure to the athlete and the casual observer? A high face validity means that the athlete is more likely to respond to it positively, or what we like to call, or, or what we like to say on the show often is athlete buy-in. And this Face validity affects motivation of the athlete to do well in the test. So this is really important. The athlete has to be able to buy into the test, especially if you're doing performance tests, and so that they perform well during the test. But that's not the end-all, be-all. The other type of validity is the content validity. And this is the assessment of the test by experts. And this has to do with... Um, to make sure that the testing covers all relevant subtopics or component abilities in appropriate proportions, and so this is has to do with you know they're doing scientific testing on it, they're doing statistical analysis on it to make sure that it's actually measuring what it's spo- supposed to measure. The next type of validity is the criterion-referenced validity. And this is actually subcategorized into a few other types of validity, but this has to do with the extent in which the test scores are associated with some other measure of the same ability. And so these has, and this one's subcategories again, and it gets into concurrent validity, predictive validity, and discriminant ability. And so concurrent validity is the extent to which test scores are associated with some other test of the same ability and so this we could as an example we can go back to the measures of threshold where there was that association between blood lactate testing for threshold and critical power uh, testing for threshold and ftp and another kind of example of this was be with the measures of body composition. So there's many types of measures of body composition. There's You can do a DEXA scan, you can do a skin fold test, you can do, uh, if you have bioimpe- a bioimpedance measure on your scale, you can get percent body fat, you can get it by um, getting into a dunk uh, the dunk tanks, the bod pods. Uh, so there's lots of different ways to measure that same thing. and. Those measures might, even though there might be just one athlete, those measures could all be slightly different to each other, so you have to talk about how they relate. Along with concurrent validity, uh, supporting it is this convergent validity, and that is the positive correlation between results of the tests versus the measure of the ideal or gold standard. And this can be summarized to a degree as the relationship between field testing and lab testing to an extent and then there's the predictive validity this has to do with the extent which the score uh, uh, the test score corresponds with future behavior or performance for so for example uh the the 20 minute ftp test the predictive value of that test will differ whether the test is performed by a time trialist a criterium racer or maybe a stage racer so you would assume that a 20 minute ftp test would have a high correlation with the success of a time trialist, but it might have less correlation with the success in competition for let's like, say a criterium racer. And then lastly, under that is the discriminant validity, and this is the ability of a test to distinguish between two different constructs and is evidenced by a low correlation between the results of the test and those of the tests of a different construct. For example, as soon as I was reading this, I was thinking of this. There was a a coach that was presenting at one of the coaching clinics I was at, kind of a high-end coach in the U.S., and he was working with a team of female cyclists, and he presented data for one day he did FTP testing, and the next day he did blood lactate testing on the on the same groups of athletes and my thought was well what are we doing here that's the same test basically twice there wasn't really anything that you were trying to discriminate a difference between by doing that test twice so that's a kind of a instance there where you have to consider discriminant validity and um how important that is to have less overlap between the tests that you are prescribing. So it probably would have been better, in my opinion, not knowing what was going on in the camp, but just from where I was sitting, it would have been better to have a measure of threshold, a single measure measure of threshold, and then maybe a, a measure of anaerobic ability. And so, like I said, this comes down to uh, all of this, really, this whole conversation will basically come down to athletes time and resources the athletes time and resources are important and tests have costs so again it's better to reduce the overlap between the tests in order to reduce the number of tests and therefore the cost that is on the athlete in terms of their time money effort training so yeah validity go ahead i've been talking for a while yeah
2: motivation is an important one as well if you're um going to be repeating tests like that just for mm-hmm. any athlete just i'm always cautious of the amount of sessions in a week that are maximal mm-hmm. at, like at some point in the session they are going as hard as they can go i always i don't know if it's been valid validated it at all but i have just this theory that there's a motivation well and if you keep digging into that well of motivation in every week training sessions or testing or things that you, you sort of have to be careful how much you're taking out of that well of motivation to go really deep because you don't want to be getting to a race and thinking oh, i can't can't go can't keep going this hard every single day so mm-hmm. That is obviously part of the reason that we have recoveries and easier periods is to to recover from that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you're constantly doing this testing or doing too much of it, and I'm sure we'll swing back around to this again, if you're doing these tests that overlap, there are days that you can't do any training and the mm-hmm. there may be some training effect from some of these tests. Like a 20-minute test is still a 20-minute all-out effort, but... You do definitely have to weigh out. All right, how many, how many of these tests do I want to do if I can gauge similar information from multiple different tests? I'll just, which one am I going to choose? Because the other days I want the athlete to still be able to train, or to be able to do some efforts that aren't completely maximal, like the majority of the testing that you would prescribe would be.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to kind of touch on that point, a- athletes are not robots, so you shouldn't approach testing athletes like an engineer and i think a lot of times in order to convey how to test you know protocols are given and uh rules of thumb are given and to help maybe new coaches or athletes kind of determine when it's appropriate to test so if you get something like test every six weeks do you have to test every six weeks weapons if you don't see any other evidence to show that they they've changed in their fitness um so yeah this every every six weeks every six to eight weeks you know these these are things to be critical of and think carefully about um and again you have to consider that athletes are humans not robots and approaching this and the, the, the what the mindset of an engineer is not going to be uh, necessarily a really great way to do it Yeah, and even
2: another thing I was just thinking there is the just the emotional toll of testing because you do get athletes that are really invested in seeing their results and if there's a situation where they're yeah they may get really nervous about the testing because they want to see that improvement and if they don't see it then That might be a big hit to their psyche and hit to their ego if they go, and then suddenly they're worrying, why aren't I improving? Why is all of this happening? So that's definitely something to be considered.
1: Yeah. And we'll probably pick up on that this part of the conversation after we get more through the theory. But uh, Damien, did you have any kind of thoughts on the bit about validity?
0: Yeah, I'm totally lost. (laughs) Like, that was a wall of information coming at me, but I'm having a hard time thinking through practical examples of, am I trying to pick one out to justify the test I'm doing? Am I trying to pick as many as possible? Like, what's a quick and dirty way to kind of move through all of this information when you have a test in mind that you want to roll out?
1: Well, honestly, I'd probably go to the the source, Um, but... The quick and dirty way would, like I said, go to something like the training and racing with a power meter book. I mean, if you would have read that, if you did, I know. But if someone was going to read that book, it's it's a, it's the quick and dirty way to go to it. I'm sure there's
0: well the short the shortcut way kind of would be someone you know like us mm-hmm. going through this and just digging in deep and deep and deep and then kind of giving our review of it and some type of stamp of approval or something, mm-hmm. um, that's kind of like the shortcut to get to it. But outside of sort of stepping through these, you know, one at one at a time, looking which one applies, trying to build up the evidence behind it and, and the scenarios in which you would use them and stuff, I don't know. It's just I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing myself going through all of these steps to validate something, and I probably would be looking for... Uh, somebody else that's done some work, at least some work to get me a little way to the point where I feel like I'm comfortable to use it if it was a new test that I hadn't thought about before.
1: Yeah, it is a lot uh, of information to come at people. And (laughs) I apologize for for going on like that, but um, I did want to kind of touch on those things because it is a lot to consider. And I think it's more of reading through Or hearing these things and have it just kind of running in the background, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And not overthink it. It's not like you think about all of those things in that moment, but it is nice to have all of those things uh, kind of expressed to you. Uh, it, 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 it's almost like grammar in a sentence. and I'm a horrible example of this, but <laughs> I mean, you, you're taught all the rules for grammar, but you don't necessarily know all the rules and think about all the rules as you speak. Does that kind of make sense? I,
0: it feels like it frames it more that if something felt off, if you couldn't put your finger on why something may not work or whatever, this would help give you a language to to talk about why it it's the wrong test for the wrong time mm-hmm. or something
1: like that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, exactly. This is the theory that is underlying a lot of our conversation. For example, like when in the threshold episode or um, when we've been critical of either functional threshold power or the um, what was the other testing that we were kind of critical of with um, Sufferfest. Right. So these are kind of the underlying principles of why we get irked about it. Right that uneasiness could probably, I think you bring up a good point. I think it can be related back to the theory that we're talking about here. So I'll move into reliability, which is the other kind of half of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So reliability of a test is a measure of the degree of consistency or repeatability of a test. A test is deemed to have perfect reliability if there are two test results are both the same and an athlete's characteristics have not changed between tests. Um, and then, of course, this gets into an epistemological rabbit hole, but I won't dwell on that too much. But the the relationship between reliability and validity is in order for a test to be valid, it has to be considered reliable because highly variable results have little meaning. And if we were going to expand that bit of theory out to maybe the cycling real world, like how frustrating is it for you as a coach to have an athlete that has a power meter that's on the fritz and doesn't measure data properly, right? You know, there's something off about that. And this bit of theory explains why that is. But the flip side of this is that a reliable test is not necessarily a valid test. So an example of this is both critical power testing and Wingate tests. So Wingate is a thirty-second all-out sprint that measures that they prescribe for uh, looking at anaerobic ability, anaerobic power. These are both reliable tests, have been va- um, but if you use those tests in the right and the wrong way, they're not going to be valid. So it's not a good idea to use a single Wingate test to um, measure endurance ability, right? So you could have reliable tests and use them in the wrong way, and that would make, invalidate them. Um, and, and another thing to consider with reliability in this example is you could have a reliable test that you use with the wrong group, <coughs> Cyrus. <laughs> um as you're explaining there, uh, but uh, so you you could have a test that works out really well for adults, but yeah, it, it, if you try to use it with juniors, it's never going to work, right? You you give you give them a, a 40k time trial test to do, and I don't know how many um, juniors are going to be really keen to do that. But yeah, you guys have any? thoughts on reliability
2: yeah I think just both the reliability and validity it's just important if as with any intervention you want to be looking at the purpose so testing in a way is an intervention there's a reason that we're, we're adding it into an athletes program and you want to be making sure that it is both reliable and valid to justify having it in the program because yeah there are those costs there so these are just things that when you're putting that in there, it's, it'd be good to just, yeah, spend the time to think, all right, is is this actually looking at what I want it to look, look at? Is it going to be a reliable means of actually giving me the information that I want? And then obviously there's going to be things such as timing and environment and that kind of stuff, which are going to influence the reliability of the testing as well. So I think um, I'm sure you will talk about this as well, but the when you get to reliability of testing that environmental conditions are an an important part of that because as you sort of suggested with the reliability, you want the test to be repeatable and if the athlete's characteristics haven't changed, you want the result to be the same, whereas the athlete characteristics might be exactly the same but the one time you've done the test, you've done it at altitude in 35 degree heat and the other time has been at sea level in 13 degrees and any anyone with any physiology background is going to know you're going to get two completely different results with that testing so i think that's an important thing to factor in and important thing to think about is is this test going to be reliable and is it valid in that it's actually going to be testing what I want to find out the information from the athlete about.
0: I just wanted to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and to give you a quick reminder about who we are and where you can find us. The show is a collaborative project between sports scientist and cycling coach, Dr. Jason Boynton, professional cyclist and cycling coach, Cyrus Monk, And myself, Damien Roos, professional cycling coach and author of this Cycling Science Digest. If you want to get in touch with any of us or find out more about what we do, check out the show notes of this episode for links to each of our websites or social media accounts. Also, a reminder that you could be part of the show too. We host the show live on Clubhouse every week. Just search Clubhouse for the Cycling Performance Club and you'll see our scheduled room. And with that, let's get back into it.
1: One of the things that is kind of a necessary thing to talk about when you talk about reliability is testing air and the sources of that air. Uh, So you could have like intra-subject air, uh, which so the reason why it would be important to talk about this testing error um, or the theory that's behind it so we have all we'll have these four categories where we'll go through with the sources of error that should hopefully help the coach and the athletes um, kind of break things down if they see a test result or something that doesn't seem to add up and maybe it has to do with something uh, in terms of error so the sources of error that you could see when you're doing athlete athletic testing is you could have it intra-subject error, which would be...
0: Oh, you're saying... Sorry, you're saying error. It sounded like air. for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I also
1: thought error and then I had to read the notes. Was- <laughs> because
0: air is actually something that <laughs> would be a cool thing to consider, yeah. but...
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, my okay. gosh. Yeah, it's... Uh, yes, that's the accent. Don't worry. <laughs> hey, hey, hold on here, guys. Uh, <laughs> Uh, where do you drink your your beers at?
2: The pub? Bah uh,
1: The what? I would say pub where, Where's the other place you... Bah Yeah Are you a sheep, Damien? <laughs> 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 Anyways <laughs> um, Yes, don't ask me to say B-A-G That'll really drive you, drive you crazy <laughs> um, Error um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought that would be like how the Australians would pronounce it Because there's an R at the end of the word You guys can't pronounce it You just pronounce it as an H Yeah, there's still two syllables ah, Error. Ah, ah. Yeah. 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 Anyways <laughs> Awesome tangent But, uh, alright So the types of testing error Would be the intrasubject Which would be within the subject um so there would be the variability within the subject maybe they don't understand how to pace the test well maybe they didn't um maybe they drank before the test or something like that and then when when you tried to re-administer the test they were not in the same condition so that could be something there motivation all these types of things can try to would go into the intra-subject variability that could lead to testing error the other type of uh, the other component to consider with testing errors: is the lack of inter-rater reliability or agreement. So inter-rater would be between the people that are rating the test. And the example that I came up with for uh, cyclists is, you know, you might have after the 20-minute test is done, you could have one rater that is judging the test by... How the where the lap buttons were hit. So the athlete would have started the lap button and then ended the lap. But another person might look at the outcome of the 20-minute test based on a 20-minute best from the ride. So that could pick up a slightly different um, result. You could have someone that is, instead of reading the average power for the 20-minute test, they might be looking at the normalized power for the 20-minute test. So these are going to um potentially um, bring in air for cycling test results uh, another one that has to do with endurance athletes and uh, training and we've talked about on the show is VT1 versus VT2 and Cyrus I think you've probably heard of this but like it's it sounds all neat and dandy about going in to get uh, a graded exercise test on a mon- metabolic cart to determine your VT1 and VT2 But man, when you have that data sitting in front of you, there there's a lot of shooting off the hip. There's a lot of squiggly lines that are going everywhere, and there's there's definitely some theory about where you're supposed to put that divide. But when every single test result is very different from each other, so there isn't like it's not nearly as easy and nice to determine as something from the 20 minute test. So again, how who's reading the test and interpreting the results can lead to error. Uh, there's another bit of – the other issue with raters is intra-raters. So you could have maybe – and this is probably going to be more um, – happen more in a lab. So you could have a the person who's administering the test m- might really want to see results in an athlete. So they might verbally encourage the athlete much more – then maybe another athlete that they're happy with the results with, or maybe they don't really like the athlete or something like that. So, um, this is more around things like, you know, if you have people that are using stopwatches and things like that, they'll potentially mess things up, um, because they're, they want the results for the test to go a certain ways so they could have, um, kind of a little bit of bias actions going on there. And lastly is the the last source of error. It just has to do with the failure of the test itself to provide consistent results. So there's a lot of things that go in there. But um, what about equipment error? Now I would imagine that goes into the failure of the test, like protocols. Yeah. And um, this gets ahead of us a little bit. But imagine if you, um, and Cyrus, you'd probably know this. Imagine if you had someone do like a a hard graded exercise test and then 10 minutes after that 5 minutes after that you ask them to do a balance test right yep. like you, you, or or a fine motor skills test yeah uh, yeah it's unless you're you've done that for some reason for specificity that's not the way to do to conduct those two tests you do yeah. the fine motor first, and then do the uh, the hard one. Or and next, even step.
2: even yeah. just having your your five minute test and your twenty minute test in the same session, and then comparing it to results from six months ago, where you had them on different days. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing as well. Like obviously, that's going to influence results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think another important thing there is this is where the tester comes into play if when you're looking at failure of the test itself and equipment failure to be able to pick that out is fairly important because an athlete that might go straight over their heads like for example i had one athlete who i gave a one minute test to and they were absolutely delighted they hit their pb by a heap and i noticed that their one minute was higher than their best ever five seconds before that and (laughs) I was fairly, <laughs> fairly confident that they hadn't suddenly been able to produce the same power for one minute as they were well, higher power for one minute than they ever had for five seconds before and this was, wasn't a, a brand new athlete. So to be able to have someone that is testing and able to look over these results to, to elucidate whether there are errors within the results and where these have come from, I think is a very important aspect of the testing.
1: Yeah, and this can actually be a hard one for a coach sometimes. And skip back is something I said to Damien, um, like one of our first episodes. I said you just got to be a jerk, Damien. And <laughs> and this gets into that because to be skeptical of your athlete's results, that gets a little, it gets a little, yeah. it, it's it's hard. I but like, them. yeah, yeah, like you don't want to come off as this jerk that's like I don't believe that you could actually do that. Right, yeah. but at the same time, you want it's really important for the results to be accurate. Yeah, and so I, I've got a perfect example yeah. of this.
0: I had an athlete that um, did a VO two max test. I think that was a like a local sports scientist just got some new tech and they wanted to roll it out with an athlete to test it. And I got the feed, and I got the the numbers back, and I was like, "You understand that if this is true and correct." You're in the top ten highest VO two maxes in the world, yeah. probably. <laughs> and so I was very skeptical, and it even got to the point where they did it again, both of them. So I put enough doubt in both the tester and the the athlete that they ran it again. Um, to my surprise, it was a little less, but it was still very high. So
1: was it in was the nineties? But
0: I just it is in the nineties, yeah, and I. I looked at it and I was just like, okay, that you know, that's amazing, and it was very close to the first one. But when you see a VO two max in the 90s, like for me, I was just kind of, I was like, no way, like, the athlete's good, but no way, there, there's got to be something off here. So that was that was a, a really interesting one, and unfortunately, it meant that the athlete did two tests, which I don't know, maybe they didn't like me after that.
1: I um, think you were within your. Um, professional rights to suggest that i i think i would have as well depending on the rider's performance um and it's physiologically possible for someone to have a really high vo2 max and not a great threshold so um you could see how but yeah if you get to a point where things look like um the athlete's uh an outlier then on some data then yeah you you're definitely going to want to be skeptical of it because again it's not uh, it shouldn't be seen as a strike against the athlete it should be looked at as you're doing your job and making sure things are accurate and um the data that you have to look at and to base their training off of represents what reality is so kudos to you but yeah it is it's always a tough spot for a coach to be like, oh gosh. Because cause, cause at the same time, you're doubting yourself too. Because you're saying, my coaching, my training plans couldn't have brought this athlete to this much success. So there's a little bit of doubt in yourself when you when you do that as well. So, But again, I think it, it it's tough. But yeah, I am always exercising some skepticism when I'm looking at test results for athletes
0: now something i want to talk about briefly here is when you're going through the sources of testing error the all of the things you're bringing up sounded like you're doing multiple tests in a lab environment you know rolling in the in and out the athletes lots of numbers of people here when we when i see that we separate this for coaches that aren't doing running you know 10 tests on one day for example mm-hmm. um we kind of have to pull, at a practical level, we have to pull some best practices out of this stuff. Like you're talking about like gold standards when it comes to trying to probably document everything so it can be uh, repeatable by another researcher or somebody else Mm -hmm. that's looking closely at something. So can we make this distinction here? Like do we have some broad strokes on best practices on, on on how do you take this information and use it either field testing or remote uh, instruct instructions for an athlete because this is the world that i'm thinking about it's like if i if i want an athlete to test how do i ensure that they're doing the best they can even when i'm not there
1: yeah so th- i was i was totally ready to give you an answer until you said and even when i'm not there right <laughs> so uh, I think the first thing to consider is why what well, the purpose of this podcast is to kind of go through hopefully uh all as as much of this and so that the, the athlete can consume it and even if you're not there even if um they can't get a hold of you they can at least kind of listen to this and have these considerations in their head um, but the way I was kind of hearing you initially when you were asking that question is how do I decide whether the type of testing I'm doing is good enough, right? Like how do I make that decision, right? Like, because not everyone's going to have access to a lab. Not everyone's going to have this whole fancy thing set up. And I will tell you, I don't access the lab to test my athletes very often. Even though I technically have access to one, and this when we get into this conversation and we're actually getting into the test selection discussion coming up here, but it really comes down to at the end of the day it might just come down to is what i do is what I'm doing working, am I considering how accurate it is, and is it? something that is actually working in the sense that I can measure the athlete's improvement to an extent that it is helpful in a practical way. Cause you remember I made a kind of, I threw the argument out there at the end of the threshold episode of weapons, if it does, if threshold doesn't matter, which would mean your a test for threshold. How accurate does it have to be, right? So, and then sometimes without a lab, you just have to administer something. And then it comes down to, again, just kind of this experience of working with data and, say, and then kind of applying a, kind of a, a, an error that you're happy assuming into the test, I guess. I don't know if that came out right. So for example, I look at my athletes uh, interval numbers to kind of gauge their progress, but you know, based on the scientific results that I've seen of looking at high intensity interval training as a gauge of the athletes performance fitness, I know it's probably not as sensitive as a, as a time trial test in a lab, right? So I have to take that into consideration is that it's not as sensitive. And if I am seeing results, then one way I could look at it is that there's the results are, or the improvements are, or the changes are great enough that it is going past the amount of error or lack of sensitivity for this testing session in quotes, right? Does that make sense? I don't want people to walk away from this thinking, just throwing their hands up in the air and just being like, well, I can't do all these fancy things that they do in a lab. Um, therefore, you know, none of this will apply. I, I, think, I think a lot of it, for especially for the online coach like yourself, Damien, I think a lot of this can apply, and then you just have to kind of realize how skeptical and how much weight you're going to put into the data that you see. Does that make sense? Like you have to be realistic about, because everyone, at some point, everyone has to be realistic about the results that they're seeing and how accurate it is. That I think is the take home. Does that kind of cover what you're asking about?
0: It covers a part of it. Mm -hmm. I think the other part that I'm thinking about is when you're trying to make something reliable and these things of say, doing it in the same time of day, doing it on mm-hmm. the same equipment, this this type of things. If if the person that's testing, the tester isn't there and the athlete is separate from them, mm-hmm. it probably falls more on the athlete to have an understanding and mm-hmm. and cover some of the things themselves so they know within themselves that they're trying to replicate that testing environment as accurately as it was the last time because it's going to be very specific to them. And then, then the coach is making the decision on the, the data once they get it.
1: Yep. Uh, I think it also gets back into, I think, the, one of the points I made originally is, is that the test is not the judge. The test is evidence in the case. So if you are trying to determine whether an athlete's performance is improving, staying the same, or decreasing, the test is a part of the story, part of the narrative that you are building, right? So it, so there's other things to be looking at, right? So if you got, if, if the, te- if the athlete came back and they had a really, a bad 20 minute test, but let's say there's something other, there's other things in the data that wouldn't make you think that that should be happening. Let's say they've had a healthy increase in CTL. All of the numbers in, in their, um, their, their intervals have been looking really good. Let's say their TSS seems to be artificially high for how long they've been riding. Let's say the intensity factors that are in PMC are trending upwards. You have all these little signs that would be pointing, at least suggesting to me, and not, not, and not even the most important thing, or one of the most important things is how's the athlete been going? I feel great on group rides. I feel like I'm one of the strongest people in the group rides. I'm doing really well in races. And you have that to add to the story that you're building. What's that 20-minute test tell you now? Is the 20-minute test going to outweigh all of the other evidence that you have there? Or are you going to say, well, this looks like you had a bad test? And we could either retest this down the road or just kind of forget about it and just kind of go with what, um, or try to kind of estimate your threshold from something else. Because sometimes, yeah, you do, in when you're in the trenches, yeah, you do have to get quick and dirty. Um, because it, it, there's, and this is, you know, I, I think understanding the theory behind things allows you to kind of better apply uh, the science in in real life. Uh, hopefully that makes some sense there.
0: Yeah, I, I think the context is really important. Mm-hmm. And just relying on the test itself is risky. And I've heard of examples of, say, someone doing an outlier test where they did amazing. Mm-hmm. And then they were setting everything off that test mm-hmm. and they couldn't nail anything mm-hmm. after that point. Yep. So there's there's a risk when you lean too much. So mm-hmm. it just becomes part of that story. I think that's... That's really important here. Yep,
1: I've um, been there. I've been there. Yep.
0: But outside of that, I, th- I think this is probably a good place to split the episode because the next topic is really big. Uh, not next topic. The next section is actually pretty big, mm-hmm. um, and it could actually be quite long. So for me, this is a good spot to split it. Are we in agreement?
2: Yep. Yep. I was going to say the same thing.
1: We might even get three episodes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to sort of take off next time with test selection. But for now, I'm going to wrap it up here. So thanks, everybody that contributed. You can find when we release episodes and when the weekly call is scheduled by following our Twitter or Instagram accounts. On Twitter, we are at Cycling Club Pod, and on Instagram, we're at Cycling Performance Club. So thank you very much, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <Random words. laughs>